Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. Welcome back to the first podcast episode after a two-month hiatus. This week, three guests talk about two significant occupations of public space that have happened in Canada in the interim. The Black Lives Matter occupation in Toronto, and occupations of Indigenous and Northern Affairs offices, or INAC, across the country. First up, I speak with the journalist Desmond Cole about the Black Lives Matter occupation of the police headquarters plaza in Toronto. Activists took over the plaza for two weeks in March and April over continuing police brutality and lack of accountability. Desmond reported regularly from the camp and spent several nights there as well. Aside from his column in the Toronto Star and his other print and radio work, he is also currently writing a book about black history and black politics in Canada. Here's my conversation with Desmond Cole. I guess we'll start with this. You did, you did a lot of reporting, almost, you know, I think at times almost a kind of like embedded journalism or whatever they call it now, um, with the Black Lives Matter, 10th city that occupied the plaza in front of Toronto Police Headquarters for, for weeks uh, this spring. Uh, maybe start, I was thinking of starting story at the beginning. It seemed, you know, it, things like this they always seem to explode out of nowhere, but they always take tremendous organization there's, and there's a big backstory. You know, based on your earlier reporting on black politics in the city and your time with the organizers, what led up to this moment? So when I think about the protests that happened at police headquarters, my mind usually goes back to the summer of 2015. Okay. Because it was on July 5th of last year, of 2015, that Andrew Loku was shot and killed in his apartment near uh, Eglinton Avenue West uh, by a Toronto police officer. And it was at that time that Black Lives Matter organized a vigil Mm. very close to his apartment and then a march, which went up along Eglinton Avenue and then uh, very infamously blocked the Allen Expressway for about 90 minutes. And, you know, the thing I remember about that time was that Black Lives Matter were upset at the lack of response to Andrew Loku's killing at the hands of police, Uh, lack of political response, lack of police response, lack of media attention. Mm -hmm. And um, when they blocked the highway that afternoon in July, um, Mayor Tory happened to be on television that night. And they actually had a camera person and a reporter from the TV station that he was on come down to the live demonstration on the Allen Expressway to ask Mayor Tory a question. Like they, they put uh, the microphone to a, a protester or two and they had people ask Mayor Tory questions directly. Right. He was not prepared for this. Yeah. This was the thing, was that this, this, this idea that the police could kill a man who was living in a building that leases out units to people with mental health issues. The idea that, you know, witnesses to this death said that it was unnecessary, but that there would be so little response from public officials really angered Black Lives Matter and many other people in the city. Um, But I remember very distinctly at that time, John Tory uh, said he would only meet with the group privately. 
And so this was a preview of what was to come because, you know, eight, nine months later, we get to March of this year and uh, the SIU comes out, the Special Investigations Unit comes out with a report clearing officers of any wrongdoing in Andrew Loku's killing. And um, Mayor Tory, for example, who had said, I'm not going to speak directly to this matter until the SIU reports on it, again, said nothing. The police said nothing. There was very little media coverage, once again. And so Black Lives Matter Toronto, I believe, at that point said, okay, we're not letting this happen again. We're not going to let this once again fade into obscurity. And so that was when they took this decision to have a rally at Nathan Phillips Square and then subsequently the next day to move to police headquarters and to camp out there. And so Black Lives Matter have been on this issue for months. Mm-hmm. And I think that they needed to do something like that demonstration in order to get media attention because the things that they had tried to do bef- like since that blockage of the highway were really not registering. Right, and a kind of and a kind of way to make things public in the face of this constant kind of let's meet in private, let's kind of you know, that it, then things a case like this just doesn't necessarily get any residence. Well, what what the bigger issue I think is because of course Black Lives Matter specifically was fighting for Andrew Loku, a 45-year-old black mm-hmm. father of five Uh, a refugee from South Sudan, his life seemed not to matter very much to people who could have been saying and doing something about it. Mm. But the larger issue is that the whole process of accountability when the police kill someone in this province is shrouded in secrecy. SIU reports are never released. Mm. Um, Officers who shoot someone have the right not to talk to the SIU. Um, when the report is filed by the SIU to the province, the province just kind of puts it on a shelf somewhere and no one ever sees it. Public officials first refuse to comment while the investigation is ongoing. And then often it's been so long after the investigation is completed that they don't feel the need to comment anymore publicly. So, so yes, this is about um, how police violence specifically affects black lives. But in the larger sense, it's also about a general lack of police accountability and secrecy yeah. when it comes to killings. I think the other thing that was interesting, just even in just the form of the protest, just in having this tent city, uh, and in a lot of the, you know, maybe, maybe not as much in the mainstream press, but in a lot of the coverage and, and when, you know, going down there and speaking with people, there was definitely a sense that it was about demands on the one hand, and these very, you know, specific concrete demands, but there was also a large part of this that was, you know, creating a kind of space and creating a kind of community. I don't know if you could just sort of speak to that and this kind of interplay between those. So the demands uh, were very specific, and I think it's important off the bat to say that um, Black Lives Matter have had an unbelievable amount of success and uptake on their demands uh, since since they first made many of them. Yes, I, I was going to ask about that, but that's exactly it. So 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 let's let's just talk quickly about some of those. Um, while Black Lives Matter organizers were outside in the freezing rain, in the snow, in the cold, 
in front of that police station for more than two weeks camped out, they were simultaneously, very quietly, negotiating with Toronto City Councillors. Toronto City Council passed in April uh, a unanimous motion asking the province to review the SIU uh, with an anti-black racism lens. Hmm. Uh, that would never have happened if not for Black Lives Matter who directly negotiated that motion. Um, there was an inquest called into the death of Andrew Loke by the provincial coroner. And the coroner said that he was persuaded to call an inquest in part by Black Lives Matter's advocacy, which is really significant. The SIU reports that I talk about that are always kept secret, um, it was not a full disclosure, but parts of Andrew Loku's SIU report were made public. That has never happened before. And again, that was a direct request of the group. Um, so their track record is quite phenomenal, yeah. really. And when public officials from John Tory to Kathleen Wynne to the coroner are coming out and saying this group is influencing us, we need to meet with them now, we need to listen to their requests, that is, that's, that's a really significant movement. But then, I'm glad you're talking about the larger kind of creating of space. This is the kind of thing that people who just were not there, it would be hard for them to understand this. So let me give a couple of examples. Um, people don't understand protest, I think, a lot of times in general. Why would you go and occupy a space and refuse to leave? It just sounds stupid. I'll tell you why. I met a young man who was homeless while I was staying. I stayed several nights uh, all night at the protest. And um, one night I met a young man who was homeless who was choosing to come and stay in the camp at night rather than go to a shelter. And he was black. And from seeing him interact with other people and talking to him, I got the sense that he really wanted to just be around other people. He wanted a sense of community. But he wasn't going to find that wherever it was that he was staying before in the way he found it at this camp. But there was also food at the yeah. camp. Anybody who wanted to sleep, there were blankets and sleeping bags and pillows. There was always hot chocolate and tea and coffee. There were people singing. There was first aid. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's cold outside. Absolutely. You're not inside <laughs> four walls. But it really was a demonstration that homeless people would show up there. It was a demonstration to me that people are seeking more than that when they yeah. look for refuge and that that felt like a safe place for people to go. There was a group of migrant farm workers. I've written actually about migrant farm work in Ontario. Really difficult, treacherous, dangerous work often done by people from places like Jamaica, and Mexico and other parts of uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, black and brown men for the most part. Mm -hmm. And they came to the protest site one day to talk about their own experiences where when they get hurt on the job, the state doesn't care for them and actually in many cases it tries to send them home. Yeah. So this is what was being created by holding on to that space. It was giving other people in the city of Toronto and beyond who have these experiences around anti-black racism, around lack of state accountability, around police violence, they were being visible now. They were being allowed to come and share their story with somebody else, even just to listen and hear them out. And I can't overemphasize like, how important that is for people. 
when people experience these things in their day-to-day lives and they don't feel like they can talk about it because no one's there to listen. Mm -hmm. So this is what that space being held created for a lot of people. Yeah, no, it was definitely, it was definitely palpable. And I mean, it was, you know, the space was nearly always full, generally and bustling sort of with some kind of activity. So it's, you know, and there's a definite sort of just draw of, of, yeah, of, of something that's being created, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we could actually even, you know, in, in some ways we're kind of zooming out further and further as, as we go. So maybe we can kind of, you know, keep going as, as you know, as you say, and, and, and as we witness so much of what Black Lives Matter has done and so much of the, the sort of political and media conversation has been around uh, unaccountable policing, racist and unaccountable policing. How do you and how do you think this movement sees us fitting in with other struggles like, you know, from lack of housing to the quality of public education, low-wage work? I mean, you already hinted at some of this, especially with the migrant workers and all of that. How do you think this interacts or this will go forward interacting with sort of the other struggles, especially ones that disproportionately affect racialized communities that yeah. go beyond policing. Yeah, I, I think it's important to establish the idea um, that Black Lives Matter is like a radically left of center uh, organizing group. Mm-hmm. As it manifests itself in Toronto, mm-hmm. that's what it is. And so it's not actually possible to talk about things like police brutality without talking about poverty, without talking about race, without talking about the social determinants of health, right? Um, And I think that's really important here because there's this notion that Black Lives Matter is supposed to represent some general uh, notion of blackness, Mm -hmm. right? And interestingly... Even many people who I think identify as more conservative are very much on board with the police accountability side of what Black Lives Matter is doing because racism racism uh, goes throughout class lines in the black community. Yeah. Rich black women and men experience racism on their jobs every day. They experience it driving in their cars and being yeah. stopped. Trying to hail a cab, whatever. Absolutely. Know. And so they relate to that kind of racism and discrimination even though they might have a good social standing as compared to the general public, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, yeah, this is, this is a movement about a kind of radical leftist reform. It's a movement that is really inspired by a lot of student action that's going on as well uh, in university and college campuses here uh, in Toronto. And it's a youth movement. Uh, a survey came out recently and said the younger you are, the more likely you are to support Black Lives Matter's main thrust, right? So, um, yeah, it, 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 I, what I think is that the movement kind of sees uh, something like police brutality as just the end symptom of an entire system of neglect and control over black people's lives but I mean this is stuff that affects everybody so when I mentioned police accountability for example if we were to have a new practice going forward that anytime someone gets killed by the police the SIU report has to be public 
well, that would do something for everybody's accountability. But Black Lives Matter is looking at it specifically from the lens of black people to whom this happens so disproportionately and for whom there is a disproportionately lower level of concern in the public and in the media and in politics. Um, but yes, absolutely. Black Lives Matter talks about prison reform as well and how many black people are being put in jail and how that is having an effect on their lives. They talk not just about policing of certain neighborhoods, but about those neighborhoods themselves. We call them priority neighborhoods. We have all these euphemisms in Toronto. We're talking about poverty, right? Yeah. But I think Black Lives Matter is also talking very explicitly about poverty. Yeah. So you can um, come at this from a lot of different angles, but I think it's very clear to me anyway that they are bringing an, uh, a leftist analysis of capitalism yeah. and of state power and examining really critically what that's doing and how people are being left behind. Black people are left behind in very specific ways, but you can look at that in a much more general sense too. And you can talk about indigenous people in this country as well. If we're going to talk about things like prison and policing as well. And indigenous people were incredibly strong in solidarity with uh, with Black Lives Matter Toronto in that camp for the couple of weeks that they were there. So um, I, I think that there is something in this movement for people generally mm -hmm. who want to talk about capitalism mm -hmm. and its effects and who want to talk about state power. What about... What about putting this in the context of some of the history? I know you're writing a book about black politics and the black experience sort of in, in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see this movement, this generation, this, but very specifically this movement, in the context of, of this history, of this history of the black experience? You know, how, how does it... In, obviously, you know, we just have a couple of minutes in very broad detail, but just sort of how it fits into, into a certain longer kind of time, you know, timeline. Well, um, what I see is uh, the elders in our community in Toronto who have fought these battles before. People who were on the street during the Young Street Riots 25 years ago when black men were being shot and killed here and people felt like there was not enough action being taken. I, I think that they're kind of seeing a rebirth of that fight. It never really went away. It might have ebbed and flowed at different points, but it never really went away. So it, what's happening now with police brutality in Toronto is tied very much to a history. And, and so it's not new. It's just a reincarnation of something that's already been uh, going on. But what's interesting is you're seeing Black Lives Matter chapters in places like Ottawa now, in Halifax, in Vancouver, and it's starting to become a thing across the country. And... Um, Again, I see it as being a really young, youthful kind of movement. And um, I think that there has always been a distinct place to talk about blackness in our country. And that's why I'm writing a book about it. Right. Because I get very, very annoyed at how easy the following tactic is. And that tactic is, well, it's not as bad. As it is in the United States, so why would we ever talk about it? Right. And um, I think that 
the fact that that has become basically a national refrain in yeah. Canada, whatever is happening to black people here is not as bad, actually really tells you how little Canadians care for the personal individual stories of black people in their midst. They actually just package us all up into a group and then they look at this other group south of the border and they say, oh my gosh, look how bad they are. You black people up here must feel so yeah. lucky. My goodness. The, wa the water is only 90 degrees, not, not 100, right? That, to the frog that, in the pot. That's, well, exactly. <laughs> it's, 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 um, it's, it's insulting and it is silencing. It's a way of erasing people and their experiences and telling them that you get to judge whether or not their experiences are worth talking about. And I really, really think that we have reached a point in Canada where black people have seen what's happening in the United States and said, my gosh, like they're not taking it anymore and have drawn huge inspiration from that. Yeah. Because it's, you see, um, I went to Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 after Mike Brown, uh, an unarmed teenager, was killed by a police officer in Ferguson. And it was at that time that Black Lives Matter kind of unintentionally formed itself here in Toronto. They wanted to have a solidarity rally for Mike Brown, but also to talk about people here in the GTA like Jermaine Carby from Brampton, who was also shot and killed by the Peel Regional Police. So what they were doing was they were looking at the way that people were organizing down there and saying, man, that's really inspiring. Let's organize in solidarity, but also talk about the fact that it's going on here. We can put a local face and understanding to this issue of police brutality. And um, it has been incredibly successful. So it would be a misinterpretation just to say that it's some kind of a copycat movement. And again, like even the notion of that, yeah. even the notion that black people here just are bored and have nothing better to do than mimic the pain and suffering of other people yeah. is un, like it's beyond patronizing but yeah. this is these are actually questions in the mainstream yeah. is it a copycat yeah. movement yeah. Uh, do they really have anything to complain about is it as bad as america uh, it tells you what canadians think of black people it's yeah. it, it's 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 very sad and embarrassing that um, we can't even have our own stories in 2016 without these like rudimentary insulting kind of questions in the media and in the public sphere but I I, I get the sense uh, that this is all happening right now for a reason and that black people in this country are feeling a renewed inspiration that we will be able to actually make a distinct claim yeah. to our stories in this country that we can start talking about blackness the way that it works here in Canada. We can stop living in the shadow of the United States all the time. That's why I'm writing about this right now, because I see it all happening, and I, I, I just find it very exciting. Yeah. That was journalist Desmond Cole on the BLMTO occupation. The second half features my conversation with two activists and organizers behind the Occupy INAC protests in Regina, Robin Pitawanakwat and Susanna Duranji. Susanna is a veteran of the long struggle for justice for Canada's First Nations, an activist for over 40 years in Saskatchewan. Robin is from a younger generation, though as the daughter of a long-time Indigenous activist, she too has deep roots in the same fight. 
The Colonialism No More camp has been up for 50 days in front of Indigenous and Northern Affairs in Regina. It started as part of a wave of occupations of INAC offices across the country in response to the state of emergency declared in Ottawa Piscat over First Nations suicides. Here's my conversation with Robin and Susanna. Um, and, and I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess the first thing was to really just bring, uh, bring us, bring, bring the listeners up to date with where, where you are, um, what, what space you're occupying in Regina, how long you've been there, um, and you know, how long, how long you expect to stay and what your, and what your demands are. We are occupying the space, reclaimed land in front of INAC, we call it, in downtown Regina, and, uh. We've been there since um, April 18th, so this is, is this day 49? Yep, this is day 49. Yeah, and as far as how long we're going to occupy it, that's that's one of the uh, the big questions that we ourselves don't yet know. So I think that's in large part up to INAC following through on commitments. You'd wanted to to talk to the staff there and, and it, was it that they didn't come in initially and then they just sort of, you know, tried to ignore you completely? Well, they, it, it they locked the matter front of, door. <laughs> it wasn't a matter of ignoring us. Any place that they thought there was going to be an occupation across Canada, INAC was closed. It was closed to everybody. There was a fear of overtaking buildings and... That was that, and they locked themselves in. So have has INAC basically not... They've been locked in the office, and they haven't really been doing anything public-facing in Regina since you've been there, essentially, in fear of fear of yourselves, fear of citizens sort of talking to them. No, no, we've been talking to them. The doors are open. And what is the they, con- they were closed, I think it was eight, eight business days, or eight mm-hmm. days. So yeah, they they were closed uh, for quite a while. We watched so many people come and try and get in the doors and get turned away without any explanation, with just some badly written little sign on the on the door saying we are not open today, but not. And then having a one eight hundred number where you called it and they didn't know what was going on either. We uh, we have been talking with INAC. How many how many meetings? I'm not sure we've had, but we had we we meet weekly. Four, I think. Yeah, I think we've had four meetings. I think it's more than that by now. I think it must be. It's probably close five to six. Then, last, something like no. that. We're losing track, anyways. We've had lots of meetings. Have they been open to engaging, kind of on the substantive, on the substantive issues? What, like, what's the sort of content of these meetings, and how do you, how do you relate to them? Yeah, that's a quick trick question. <laughs> <laughs> We've been trying to collect data from them, and getting data is like pulling teeth because basically I don't even think they know how to collect it. And we wanted it so that it's all over their website, but I mean, I'm an experienced researcher, and it's an, it's almost like pulling teeth finding it. So how does somebody that just wants to go in there and get information to find it? So we want it somewhere where everybody can see it. And, and get to it easily, and it, it, it's been a hard process doing that. But, but I guess we kind of moved on and figured we collected what we collected, and we're moving on to other things, and it's getting a bit more positive that way. 
Yeah, what we were wanting to collect the data for is we wanted people um, from the the different First Nations to be able to look up their own community and find out what the what the potential crises are or what the current crises are uh, regarding water, understanding why the water needs to be boiled, um, what are the possible side effects of whatever is in the water, and then understanding about housing, what the weight is, all those different things that affect people in in the various communities. Um, and they have all of that information, just not in an accessible format to um, individuals. And then there's different departments, like uninsured health benefits isn't at INAC or re- really part of INAC. And so it, it gets all confusing. It's scattered all over the place. This occupation was part of this wave that, that started out of this escalation in, in Attawapiskat. But I, I wonder how the situation of the communities in Saskatchewan, for example, you know, w- where you are, how, what are the driving sort of factors there? How do, how do the local conditions where you are interact with the sort of broader picture of First Nations Canada? You know, you, you mentioned already water, housing, health insurance. Um, well, since we've been out there, we found out that the poverty rate on Saskatchewan First Nations is the second highest in the country. It's at 69% of children on First Nations are in poverty, as opposed to the rest of Saskatchewan, um, where non-Indigenous children are have a poverty rate of 13%. In fact, it's the lowest in Canada and Saskatchewan for everybody else. So we have the biggest gap. Like Manitoba has the highest rate at 76, but because of population-wise and what their poverty rate is, they don't have the biggest gap. We have the largest gap. You talked about the poverty, the poverty rate, um, and I wonder, sort of, what the distribution of that is, and especially, you know, if the occupations came out of this concern with Atawapiskat, which is a remote community, um, and a lot of the sort of right-wing apologists have, you know, focused on this and how it's not possible to, you know, to deliver this service or that service or basically make a lot of excuses for the kind of poverty um, that's visible in remote communities. Uh, But, you know, you're occupying an office in urban Regina and you have a community there. I was wondering sort of what unites the various kinds of problems that First Nations communities face across across the country that you see in your own locality. Um, and that sort of, you know, undermines this kind of, this kind of rhetoric of it being, oh, it's just, you know, it's just too remote or whatever. Well, as far as my own family is concerned, uh, the, the poverty rate, even in urban centers, is still really high for Indigenous people. Um, it's over... 50% of, of urban Indigenous people are also in poverty. Um, and then suicide rates are incredibly high across the board. Yeah, and also it's it's like Attawapiskat is just a microcosm of what's going on in Canada. Like, we have the same issues on reserves in, in Saskatchewan. We have reserves that are in a state of emergency. We we have the same issues as Attawapiskat. It's not isolated, and people have to start to remember that, yes, it started because of Attawapiskat, but then people started bringing it in more locally as well because 
it, it's right across the country. It's all about what co- colonialism has done. It's all about what genocide has done. It's all about what poverty and racism has done. And it's the same thing right across Canada. And the, and the prairie provinces are, are forgotten. As you can see, Manitoba, Saskatchewan have the highest rates of child poverty in Canada. We have the highest rates of missing, murdered Indigenous women. We have the highest rates of everything. So it's time that Canada woke up that it's not just Attawapiskat. What's happening in Attawapiskat is horrific, but it's the same thing right across the board. Why do you think you're so easily forgotten? And I, and I, you know, I, I say that generally, even even information about your occupation is kind of hard to come by, and it's sort of, you know, in many ways, the national media ignored, even though, as you say, you're facing, you know, a, a crisis situation. Yeah, uh, why are we ignored? <laughs> Good question. I don't know why we're It's ignored. financially we beneficial to the mainstream population. I mean, we're, we're ignored in all communities, even activist communities. We are ignored. It seems like everybody focuses on BC and then Ontario on. And somehow the prairie provinces just don't exist, yet we have the highest rates of everything, even resource extraction and maybe that's why we're ignored if they can ignore us then maybe nobody will know all the resources that are extracting here which is adding to our problems as first nations because most of the resources are found on first nations lands i wanted to also ask you maybe to switch gears a little bit but i wanted to ask you about about tactics because i I just also did an interview about the black lives matter occupation that took place here in Toronto, and just what what struck me was obviously this similarity in terms of tactics, in terms of tactics of occupying sort of prominent public space, um, and public space that's in many ways very symbolic. So the police station here and INAC offices, Toronto, Regina, where you are, and, and other places across the country. Why choose the occupation as a tactic, and why and why do you think it's it's an important one? Well, I think it's a it's a peaceful one generally, and it's one that forces people to ask questions, to wonder why we're there, um, when people really like to ignore uh, issues, and and both like police stations and INAC offices are generally centrally located; they're highly visible. Mm-hmm. And I guess they have a symbolic sort of function as well. Well, well, yeah. also when you, when you think about colonialism and what's affected us, we have to talk about the Indian Act and who are the agents of the Indian Act, INAC. And we thought, like when we set up camp, we thought that they were responsible for all aspects of um, of status Indian control. But in in our talks, we've it's been pointed out to us that it's actually several branches of government that all get paid to deal with indigenous issues. So we're, we really are an industry for many people, but but INAC is definitely the symbol of all of those put together. And how, how do you see both locally and I guess on a more national scale because it did take this kind of national um, form, how, how do you see this fitting into sort of a recent the recent history of First Nations activism 
uh, more generally, including I don't know more. Is this is this sort of in the same strand? Is there something is there something new here? Is it uh, another reverberation of this? This is nothing new. This has been happening year after year after year. It's nothing new. It's just that we're standing up once more. We're standing up once more and saying enough is enough. And this time I think we're being listened to more than we have in the past. Um, Well, I think actually for me, the reason why I'm more involved now is because so much information came out with the TRC. Um, and it united people across the country. You would hear stories of, of people that went to residential school, but the government of Canada made a re- like did a really good job of making it seem like those were the exceptions. The people that were abused were the exceptions. Um, and the abuses were, you know, they were mistakes. They were, t- they were it was, it was um, sort of just how people did things in that era. And there's more and more evidence that was brought out by the TRC that though, no, they were planned. They were deliberate. Uh, they did experiments on children. They did, they, one, one residential school had an electric chair that it used for punishment. It's just outrageous things. And it's in black and white. It's in documentation that the government has been holding on to all this time. And the anger I felt from being deceived intentionally deceived through my whole education and I took indigenous studies um like that was that was my major in university at one point and there was no mention of those things and I just I don't want to sit by and just be okay with that as it comes through or just try to do you know It's so possible for things like that to happen again. And they do happen, but in a different way. Like child apprehension rates are are horrible for First Nations people. And I have even been threatened with child apprehension over a complete misunderstanding that eventually became, you know, I got a written letter from our local social services saying, this is not an issue. We don't see any problems with you. We are sorry that you were ever contacted kind of thing. But they, they were so quick to even throw that in for apprehension. And Sue has had that issue too. Whereas yes. all of my non-Indigenous friends, they, none of them have ever been threatened with apprehension. And they parent in very much the same way as I do. So like that, that's such a quick thing still to do. And it's not residential schools but it's the foster care system and that is also violent and it is damaging in just just as many ways as residential school was. It's just not in the same format. As the name of your camp itself, as far as colonialism no more, right? It's mm-hmm. it's not a question of individual, as you said, individual sort of bad people or bad or bad situations. It's a whole it's a whole system, and and I mean, I guess maybe my last question, going off of that, a lot of the official response to the TRC has focused on recognition, I guess, and yeah, and in, in sort of the broadest sense, one to get just get your response to that and get between these demands for recognition, but also for resources for self governance. Like, what are the limits of of what the conversation is around the TRC, for example? Well. 
one one issue I have with people focusing on recognition is that they think that that's that's the extent of their responsibility, um, and they don't go beyond that. They think, okay, you know, I've apologized, so let's move on. But yet, Indigenous people have been, <laughs> yeah, are, are how do I say these things? We're at a a huge disadvantage. We can't just forget it and move on because for generations we have been held back and obstacles have been put in our in our in our way and they still are um acting like because um residential schools are gone um because we're allowed to vote uh, those things because we've had those those victories that we don't have any obstacles left is is short-sighted i think i mean the the trc has over 90 recommendations so yeah, the recognition is only one small part of that, and people need to be looking at all of those recommendations. They can't just focus on the recognition part, which I think is the the one that people like to focus on and think that that's enough. A lot of people are waking up with TRC, but there's lots of us that have been active for many, 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 many years, long before TRC long before it, and saying these same things over and over ad nauseum. And in some ways, the TRC and the term reconciliation is now going to be a way to try and um, sweep some things under the carpet. And we have to be cautious of that. I'm not saying the TRC isn't good and it's about time. But we also had the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples a long time ago, and it cost tons and tons of dollars, and nothing was done about that either. So we have to be really, really careful that people don't just focus on recognition and reconciliation by what definition, and that we have to find justice, and that people understand that we have inherent rights in this country, and that like the poverty report says, shameful neglect, and that shameful neglect of everything for at least the last 140 years with the Indian Act. That was Susanna Durange and Robin Pedawanakwat of the Colonialism No More Camp in Regina. That's all for this week. Talk to you again in two weeks.